is going on, true crime fans. I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. We are live in our new house in Oregon. It's true, we've moved back to Oregon, and we're going to turn our attic into our new studio, but we're not there yet, so this is our little temporary studio we're dealing with today. Right, so if it sounds a little bit echoey, just know that we are going to get that fixed in like the next week. Today we've got a very just roller coaster ride of a story, and this is probably the longest notes that I've done maybe ever. Yeah, she wrote um, a lot of pages of notes, so this might be a really long episode for you guys. In the beginning of this story, it's kind of like, okay, this sounds like it might just be a regular story, and there's so many twists and turns. Buckle up, guys. All right, guys. So without further ado, this is episode 69 of Going West. So let's get into it. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. A podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The mysterious disappearance of pregnant marine wife Erin Corwin. This beautiful young mother-to-be just disappeared from one day to the next, right before her mother came to visit her. Is there a break in the case? Corwin, who was pregnant at the time of her disappearance, left her home in 29 Palms, California on June 28th and told her husband she was going to Joshua Tree National Park. The search continues for the missing marine wife, who's also three months pregnant. A murder mystery involving a pregnant Marine wife has been solved with the arrest of this man. This is a mine shaft expert preparing to go down and get her body out of a 140 foot mine shaft.
Aaron was born on July fifteenth, nineteen ninety four, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and she was immediately put into the foster system. After three years with this family, they officially adopted her, and this is when she became Aaron Hevelin. And her new parents were Lori and William Hevelin. She even had six older siblings in this family, so she was very much surrounded by love. Oak Ridge, Tennessee, is a small town of about thirty thousand people, just outside of the city of Knoxville, and it's actually known as one of the safest towns in all of Tennessee. Since Erin grew up being pretty quiet and bashful, but very sweet, she related a lot to animals, especially horses. Those were her favorite. So she began spending her days at the East Tennessee Riding Club, where she learned how to ride horses, and that really became her home away from home. And this also really helped her kind of break out of her shell. Another place Erin spent a lot of her upbringing was church, because the Hevelins were very religious. As Erin entered her teen years, she spent more and more time at the barn, and even got two horses herself. When she was 16, she started working at the barn to make some extra money. And then the following year, she got a job working at the local tractor supply store as a cashier. Back in fifth grade, Aaron met a boy named Jonathan Corwin at the horse barn. And as they grew up, they got closer and closer, and their friendship blossomed into a romantic relationship when Aaron was sixteen and John was seventeen. So he was a full year older than her. And when Aaron was about seventeen years old and was just graduating high school. John asked Aaron to marry him after putting a ring on her Sprite can, which was her favorite soda, and she very enthusiastically accepted his offer. Yeah, I think that he put the straw in the Sprite and then put the ring on top of, like, over the straw, and then handed it to her. She liked it. Aaron was head over heels in love with John, but he was headed into boot camp because he was joining the Marines. So he proposed to her the night after graduation, right before he left for a two-month-long boot camp. And Aaron continued to post on Facebook about her excitement every time she received a letter from John, and every time that she wrote letters back, they would always be multiple pages long. So I read one Facebook post where she really excitedly said that she wrote him a five-page letter. And on Facebook, she also would count down the days and weeks until John was done with boot camp, so they could start their lives together. And Aaron's parents were really happy with this news about their engagement because they had known John for years, and they just thought that he was a really good kid. But they worried about her being alone and away from him all the time since he was joining the Marines. You know, they were a bit worried about how that would affect the relationship, him being gone all the time. But later that year, in November 2012, when Aaron was 18 years old, she and John attended a Marine Corps ball, and just hours after it started, they fled to Las Vegas to elope. You know, they were very young. She was 18, he was 19, but they they knew that they wanted to be together, so they went for it. So it's now late 2012, and Aaron and John are married. Soon after the two of them got married, they decided to move across the country to 29 Palms, California, which is where John's Marine combat base was. And Aaron was excited about this because she'd be able to be close to John, and since they were living at the base, she could make friends with other wives who also had husbands in the military and knew kind of what she was going through. But John still didn't come home every day. He would sometimes have to stay out in the desert for extended periods of time, sometimes many weeks. So although they were really close by, there was a lot of absence there, which was to be expected. 
And 29 Palms, for those of you who don't know, is located in San Bernardino County, and it's right next to Joshua Tree, so it's out there in the desert. So it's also a very remote place to live, where there's just miles and miles of desert and national parks around you. So it's a very tight-knit community, especially on the base. Aaron started making friends with the local horse rescue owner named Isabel Megley. One day, Aaron went over to the White Horse Rescue looking for a horse that she could ride and kind of see if she could help around the rescue with anything because she wasn't working so and she loved horses so she kind of just needed something to do. And the horses really grew fond of her and vice versa. And that's when Aaron started meeting more locals, including a man named Chris Lee, who was 25 years old, and his wife, Nicole. They had moved to 29 Palms from Alaska and were Aaron and John's next-door neighbors in their apartment building. Chris had also been in the Marines, so Chris and John connected on that level. And Chris and Nicole even had a five-year-old daughter named Liberty, who Aaron loved spending time with especially because Liberty also loved horses, so they would all go to Isabel's ranch and play together, and the adults also really loved to barbecue and just kind of hang out, so John and Aaron seemed to be making some friends. All Aaron really wanted at this time was to have a happy marriage with John and eventually raise a family. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and have that all-American kind of white picket fence sort of life. So she and John started trying for a baby right away. And in late 2013, she became pregnant at the age of 19, and she and John were incredibly happy. But shortly after figuring out that she was pregnant, in early 2014, Aaron suffered a miscarriage. And this was incredibly hard on both of them, but especially Aaron, of course. She wanted to be a mom so bad, and she was still very young, so she didn't necessarily have the coping skills to deal with this kind of grief. As her mother Lori explained, But a few months after the miscarriage, on June 22nd, 2014, Aaron found out that she was pregnant again. Although she and John were very excited, a big part of them was pretty worried that Aaron would miscarry again. So they sort of walked on pins and needles. They also decided to refrain from sharing the news with anyone just to be safe. Especially since Aaron's mom was planning to visit 29 Palms just a couple weeks later. So she wanted to save the news for her trip to California. On Saturday, June 28th, 2014, so about six days later, Aaron woke up with John and started getting ready for the day. She then told him that she was going out to scout hiking trails in Joshua Tree for when her mother was coming to visit, and she left the house at around 7 a.m., and John kind of rolled over and went back to sleep. Aaron didn't give John a time that she would be back, but he just expected that she would return by the early afternoon. But as the day turned into night, she still wasn't home. Throughout the day, John texted her over 50 times, and he didn't receive an answer for any of these texts. That night, John went to sleep, and when the next morning came and he noticed Aaron still was not home, he called Aaron's mom to see if she had heard from her daughter. Lori immediately became incredibly worried because she hadn't heard anything from her, but she knew that Aaron didn't have a very good sense of direction. So she automatically assumed that the most likely scenario was that Aaron had gotten lost and was out there in the desert somewhere alone and scared. And when John got off the phone with Lori, he called 911 to report Aaron missing. And this is a little suspicious off the bat. You and your new and now pregnant wife have been living in this desert community for just around seven months 
and she goes out on her own to look for hiking trails, and nightfall comes, and you fall asleep without knowing where your wife is, and then you wait a whole 24 hours to call the police, especially since she said she was going out on the trails in the end of June, when you would assume in the desert the temperatures are very high. So she could have run out of water and passed out or encountered a wild animal or a dangerous person, and you wait till the next morning to call her mom and call police? Kind of sketchy. And police felt the same way. They thought it was very strange that he waited an entire day. And because of this, police also began questioning Aaron and John's marriage. So one of the first things the detective did was call Lori, Aaron's mom, and ask her if their relationship was rocky and if she thought Aaron wasn't looking for hiking trails at all that day, and that maybe she just used that as an excuse to get out of town and drive back to Tennessee. But Lori didn't think that that was the case at all. She really felt that Aaron was just lost and just wanted the police to go out there and look for her. John got together with some of his marine friends that day and started going around the desert looking for Aaron, but they didn't find any trace of her. Which makes sense because she really could have been anywhere. It's hundreds of thousands of acres of desert. So they would not have an easy time searching for her because of that. I mean, she virtually could have been anywhere. All she said was she was going to Joshua Tree National Park. So, I mean, since Aaron had taken her car, they at least hoped to find that and trace her movements from there. So police brought John in for questioning because not only was he likely the last person to see Aaron, but he was the husband. John was very calm, and he's that way in interviews too, which can kind of come off as strange, especially since the topic of discussion was his missing pregnant wife. But he was also being very cooperative and even took a polygraph test and passed. But as we know, passing a polygraph doesn't always mean everything. So police tried to look for other ways they could rule him out. And they discovered that the location of his cell phone was on the base all day, whereas Aaron's wasn't. So this led them to believe that Aaron and John were in different places the day she went missing. Therefore, he probably wasn't involved in whatever happened to her. Unless he had left his phone at the base to throw investigators off. Which is always possible, of course. And But I mean, at the same time, at this point in the story, they're still just hoping that she simply got lost while hiking and was still alive. So not too much reason to be suspicious of John anyway, because there's really no, no proof of foul play or anything like that. Right, there's no indication that she was murdered. Exactly. Investigators also asked John why he waited 24 hours to call police and report his wife missing, and he stated that he thought that that was just the law. He supposedly didn't think he could call before 24 hours had passed. But like we said, John was a very calm person, and this actually bothered Aaron a lot of the time. He didn't have a lot of passion in his personality, he acted kind of unbothered and indifferent in almost every situation. And Aaron was very thoughtful and kind and loving, so their personalities could sometimes clash. But Aaron mostly just wondered if John really even cared about her or was madly in love with her, because he really just didn't show it. This shook up the marriage a bit, and it was brought up in John's interrogation with police. They also had a lot of money troubles. Since Aaron didn't work, all the money came from John, but even he didn't make very much. So they were pretty much barely scraping by. But even so, Aaron liked to buy things, and she was very bored most of the time. So she racked up some high credit card bills. 
and John had to take the card away from her, which really upset her as well. So on the outside, this couple may look like a sweet and loving pair, but they definitely had their fair share of issues, and this only gave police ideas of motive. On June 30th, 2014, so one day after Erin was reported missing, her blue Toyota Corolla was found outside the rear entrance of the Marine Corps Combat Center. Someone had reported the car to police after having seen it there two days in a row, so it struck the person as suspicious enough to call 911. There was a single set of footprints found in the dirt next to her car that were found next to some tire tracks, which indicated to police that Erin had likely gotten into someone else's car. And her car was found very far away from the Joshua Tree National Park's entrance which was where she would have gone to look for hiking trails. So finding her car that far off was very strange to police. Lori was close with her daughter Erin, but there were definitely things that Erin kept from her, which you can pretty much expect in many mother-daughter relationships. Erin had a best friend who she told absolutely everything to, and her name is Jessie. Jessie lived back in Tennessee, but they stayed very close even after John and Erin's move. So, Jessie was pretty up to date. When she found out that Aaron was missing, she told Lori that the last she had heard from Aaron, she was going out to the desert with someone named Chris Lee. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, 
which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, You can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now that police had located Aaron's car and two days had passed, they were worried about where she would be. But when Lori told them that she was apparently with a young man named Chris Lee the day she disappeared, they knew exactly where to start looking. So we mentioned Chris Lee a bit earlier. He's the next door neighbor with the wife and daughter. Well, apparently, he and Aaron were becoming more than just new friends. And this was very obvious to anyone who was around them. Even when they would hang out with John and Nicole as a group, they spent a lot of time talking to each other. Even Isabel, who, remember, is the owner of the horse rescue and she's friends with this whole group, noticed this. And she went straight to Nicole because she thought it was really strange. But Nicole truly felt like they were just friends. Uh Uh-oh. Trouble is a brewing. Apparently, Erin felt like she could confide in Chris, and that's how the relationship really took off. Since John was dismissive and stoic... She would vent to Chris about her daily troubles, and he really listened to her. And she didn't feel like she could get that from her husband. He was about five years older than John, and maybe more emotionally mature, or seemed to be, than him, so that might have also had something to do with it. Chris supposedly felt the same way. He had a lot of trauma after fighting in Afghanistan, and confided his own fears and troubles to Aaron. 
As the two got closer, Nicole, Chris's wife, changed her mind and became convinced that her husband was having an affair with Aaron. So she went to John and told him about all of it, and he was very upset, yet he was also forgiving. He was willing to look past the whole affair if he knew it was over, and by all accounts, it was. So the four of them started hanging out again, but with a little tension in the air. And of course, this affected John and Chris's relationship, but it kind of takes a lot to say, okay, I understand that you had an affair. If it's over, let's get past this, and we can all be friends, and you're still my wife. You know, the fact that he didn't say, we're over, or something. That's a very, very, very tough thing to do. Um, Especially, I mean, going back to hanging out with that couple. You know, I just feel like, I feel like that would be very, very hard to do. I agree. And I I don't know, just the fact that he must have really loved her, even though he didn't really show it because of his very stoic personality. You know, and if you watch interviews of him, if you Google them or watch them on YouTube, you'll see he's very, very calm. So I could definitely understand how she would have trouble getting that love and passion out of him. But apparently it was there. And I also kind of wonder what the dynamic was as far as like the two couples beginning to hang out again after this. Because I'm, I'm wondering like whose idea it was. Did John say, okay, well, you had an affair. It's cool. Like we can go back to hanging out with him. Or was it Aaron's idea because she still kind of had, you know, some sort of feelings for Chris? I just wonder how that dynamic went. Well, I think since they were still so new to this area and these were really the only other friends that they had, they were friends with a couple other people in the apartment building and obviously John had some Marine friends, but these were the people that they hung out with the majority of the time. And even though they weren't the best of friends because they were still just getting to know each other, I think John probably just didn't want this little affair to ruin their new life in 29 Palms. I've just got to say, I think John is a pretty level-headed guy. Yeah, I agree. So once the police became aware of this whole affair situation, they wondered if John snapped and did something to Aaron since she had been unfaithful. But when he was asked about this, he simply said that they had worked it out and there was apparently no animosity in he and Aaron's relationship, nor he and Chris's friendship. But since Aaron had plans to see Chris the day she disappeared, police then began to believe that the affair was still ongoing, but behind Nicole and John's backs. Police then started talking to Jesse, remember, who is Aaron's best friend back in Tennessee, to see what she had to say about the whole thing, because if anyone was going to know, it was Jesse. So Jesse said that she spoke with Aaron pretty much every day, and that Aaron often complained about her marriage with John. And she would say that, you know, she didn't know if she wanted to be with him anymore, things like that. Especially once she started getting attention and care from Chris, she developed real feelings for him. And she even told Jesse that she planned to leave John and marry Chris Lee. Ugh, this is just getting even more complicated. And Chris is also married, so it's like drama. Yeah, it's a little much. There's a little too much going on here. So obviously the affair is very much not over. Jesse told police that Aaron wasn't at all the type of person who would have an affair, so the whole thing was really confusing to Jesse. But she wanted her friend to be happy, so she supported her. Jesse also told police that Aaron believed that she was bearing Chris's child and not John's, so it gets even more complicated here. And that Aaron had even told Chris that she thought it was his, and Chris was excited and wanted to tell everyone, or so he told Aaron. 
But little did Aaron know, he was planning to move back to Alaska with his wife and daughter and build their family there instead of staying in California. Police found this out when they talked to Isabel. She told them that Chris and his wife and daughter had actually just moved in with her while they were getting ready to move back to Alaska since Chris had just been discharged from the Marine Corps. And this was just four days after Aaron went missing. And he's moving away? That kind of seems a little suspicious to me. Oh yeah, and get this. The day before she went missing, Aaron texted Jesse about a secret trip Chris wanted to take her on the following day to celebrate her pregnancy. Oof, secret trip. Secret trip the day she goes missing. One text she sent to Jesse said, quote, The location is only half the surprise. He said he's honestly not sure how I'm going to react. End quote. Then, Jesse sent her a bunch of emojis, including an engagement ring. And Aaron responded, Maybe! Exclamation point, exclamation point. Seriously, I don't know why he would drag me to a very special place for a big dumb surprise. It apparently takes two hours just to get there. A long, slow drive. Good talking time, though. Detectives went to talk to Chris about this special trip, and he told them that he hadn't seen Aaron that day at all. He even made it seem like he didn't really know her. When police were authorized search warrants to search his apartment and car, they found 10 shell casings for a 40 caliber gun in his Jeep. He told police that they were from hunting. Police also confronted John about the fact that it was believed that Aaron's baby wasn't actually his, and he had absolutely no idea. He thought the affair was completely over, and this news devastated him. With everything that was going on, John wasn't in a good headspace, and some of his fellow Marines felt suspicious about him since he was involved in the case. So he was considered mentally unstable at that time and was put on leave. And he was obviously going through a lot. I mean, his wife is missing, so he's out there looking for her and worrying about her. And then he finds out their baby might not actually be his and that she was still having an affair behind his back. And now his colleagues think he's a killer or something. I mean, that must have been really rough. But that's the shitty part is that instead of people understanding that maybe he's just going through a bad time, they're more so turning this against him and being like, well, because he seems unstable, he's likely to be a killer. Like he likely killed his wife. And I just think that that's kind of bullshit. A lot of his close friends that were Marines and everybody else in his life knew that that wasn't something that he would ever do or be capable of doing. But a lot of the other Marines on the base who knew of him or kind of knew him in passing but didn't know his, his character were like, oh, maybe he's a killer. I think it was kind of like a, a gossipy thing. Maybe nothing else was going on in 29 Palms at that time. Yeah, I mean, maybe that was just the biggest headline that was going on in that desert town. Especially since it was a small community, I imagine nothing of this caliber had ever happened to any of these people. When police brought Chris down to the station and did a full interrogation, Chris opened up about his relationship with Aaron. He told them that they were just friends who had never had sex, and that he really just confided in her about his time in Afghanistan, and that was it. They just kind of bonded over their depression. And the reason he hadn't mentioned this before is because he didn't think it was relevant. He then went to tell police that Aaron also confided in him that John was physically abusive towards her. Meanwhile, there was no evidence of that being true at all. 
It appears that this was his way of pointing the finger at somebody else. Especially because of his little trail of lies that he's already given us. You know, he originally said he didn't even know Aaron and only crossed paths with her on the base and waved, you know. He made it seem really casual. And then he comes out and says, oh, you know, we were kind of having an affair, but there's no touching. When we know there was because of the text from Aaron to Jesse. So how can we trust anything this guy's saying? Yeah, exactly. And it's not like Jesse's going to go making this shit up, you know? Well, especially because we have the actual text proof. And all of Aaron's close friends and John's close friends would know if any kind of abuse was happening. And they were all like, uh, no. And he also told police that they thought about running away together, but didn't because he didn't want his daughter to have a broken home. He also said that when his wife Nicole found out about the affair, he completely ended things with Aaron. And Chris says that he thinks that Aaron made up the whole special trip thing to Jesse because she wasn't over the fact that they had broken up. So now Chris is saying, oh, that text was a lie that didn't happen. So when the investigator asked him what exactly he did that day then, the day that she disappeared, he said he had gone out to Joshua Tree National Park to shoot coyotes. He then told a story about a man who he thought was shooting at him that day. He described the whole situation about this creepy man who randomly fired four shots at him and that it scared him and he jumped back in his car and ended up getting lost. And then he didn't get home until 3.30 because he was lost because of this random guy shooting him in the desert. Well, and also it makes me wonder if he was trying to say, oh, well, there was some crazy guy out in the desert shooting his gun at people. So maybe he's the one that like killed Aaron or something. Exactly. He's trying to like put together this wild little story and putting it into this interrogation so casually to make it seem like there's a gunman on the loose in the area. But even the investigator thought this story was totally bogus. He's just a really big deflector. Exactly. So first, oh, jo- first of all, John's abusive, and now there's a gunman in the desert. Like, he's such a deflector. So Detective Hankey started to give Chris some details about what they knew, including the fact that they had found Aaron's car. And in the interrogation video... You can see his demeanor kind of change, and his reactions get kind of strange. His response to them finding her car was very suspicious. Quote, Oh, did you? Okay. The detectives started noticing that Chris was tensing up, so he ran with that and told Chris casually, Her tire tracks are there, and your tire tracks drove over hers, showing that you met her there. Which was, by the way, not at all confirmed. He just wanted to see if Chris would say anything to that. So Chris then tells the investigator that, yes, he did see her car that day, but he didn't see her. And this is so funny, especially in the video, because he's just really grasping at straws to continue lying. He said that he was worried that if he told them that he saw her car that day, they would have assumed he did something. So he's just backpedaling so hard. And I'm sure these investigators are just honestly probably cracking up inside watching this guy squirm exactly and because this detective henke he obviously that's what they do they kind of say oh we found this evidence against you even if it's a lie just to see if the person they're interviewing will confess and it totally worked because they didn't know that those were chris's tire tracks at all he was just going out on a limb 
And then Chris says, oh, well, yeah, I saw her, but, you know, I just didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to look suspicious. What? I also don't know if that's a real a real legal interrogation tactic. I'm pretty sure that you're not supposed to do that as an investigator. You're not supposed to make up some story because then that could be um, dismissed in court. Well, I don't even know if they were really trying to use that specifically against him. I think they were just hoping that it would lead to a confession and lead to a voluntary confession on Chris's behalf. I guess that kind of makes sense. And another super crazy moment in this interview was what happened next, when the detective asked Chris if he had made any calls that day. And Chris said, quote, I didn't because I literally lacked the ability to because of the area we were in. The area we were in. Let's say that one more time. The area we were in. And Chris had previously told police numerous times that he was out alone that day. And he even told that to Detective Hanke multiple times during this interrogation. And now he's caught on video saying, we. Now the detectives felt a lot more confident that Chris was hiding something. And after a nine-hour interrogation, he still wasn't cracking. So they let him go for the time being because at this point, they still didn't know where Erin was or what happened to her. So they didn't know exactly what they were looking for in Chris. But when the detective drove him home, he noticed Chris ask him a lot of strange questions, including, how good are you at your job? And how many bodies have you not found in the desert? And this was obviously very unsettling to Detective Hanky. And also really fucking stupid of Chris. Yeah, imagine literally asking a detective who thinks you're suspicious of something, how many bodies have you not found in the desert? Ugh, God. That question doesn't even make sense. I don't know because I haven't found them. What do you mean, how many have we not found? Since Chris was staying at Isabel's ranch, police also got a warrant to search her property as well as a white Ford truck which also belonged to Chris. They found a 22 caliber rifle in the house after Nicole had told them that Chris had been hiding it there. It was in Isabel's closet, which Isabel had no idea about because she had a house rule and that was no guns. So it definitely wasn't hers and it was Chris's. And they also found a potato launcher, which is basically a small cannon in his truck. And these are illegal devices, so they arrested him on suspicion of possessing a destructive device. He was released on bail just two days later. And about a week after this, it was Aaron's 20th birthday, and they still had no idea where she was. And I, <laughs> just a little story time here, and I've actually um, had a potato launcher before when I was a kid. Please, uh, please. Right, yeah, exactly. Me and my dad made one together, but it just seems as if they're just like trying to nail him for any small thing that they can just to be able to interrogate him more, which I think is smart because... Honestly, it's a potato launcher. It's probably not that big of a deal, but they're like, let's haul him in. Oh, yeah. They just wanted to get him for something and hoping that he would confess to the other thing that they want to know. But what even does a potato launcher do? It launches potatoes. I know, but why? Um, because it's fun. What? It's so weird that that's illegal, though. I did look it up and it said because it's technically a small cannon, so it's like an explosive little machine. Oh, totally. Yeah, and... Me and my dad made one as kind of like a little like science project that we did together. 
And, you know, it's not like we're going around like shooting, <laughs> shooting potatoes at cars or anything, but we would take it out to, into a field and shoot it off. Right, right, right. I wonder what Chris used his for. Shooting potatoes at coyotes, I'm assuming. Honestly, you're probably right. So the community, as well as Aaron's family, who, by the way, were now in 29 Palms, were all out there looking for Aaron. Meanwhile, Chris Lee and his family went back to Alaska. And the police couldn't stop him from doing this because he wasn't being charged with any crimes at that time. So that was kind of disappointing because they were very skeptical of him. As police continued to interview people in Aaron's close circle, Isabel, who was very accommodating and helpful with this case, told police that just before Aaron went missing, Chris had told Isabel that he found a mine in the desert that no one would be able to find. Others also came forward stating that Chris had recently asked them how to dispose of a body. Ugh. So it's not just a matter of Chris being caught lying to police, but now other people in his circle are stepping forward and saying really sketchy shit about him. So with all this new information mixed in with the fact that Aaron was still nowhere to be found, police were starting to suspect that Chris had killed Aaron and hidden her body in a secret mine. And that would also make sense with the text regarding the secret trip and how even Aaron didn't know where she was going that day. Maybe because Chris didn't want anyone else finding out where he put her. But in this area, there are countless mine shafts. Remember, this is the desert, so there's probably a lot of mine shafts from back in the day trying to find gold and stuff like that. So this wasn't going to be an easy find, especially for the investigators who weren't really all that familiar with all the mines in that desert. So they reached out to a man named Doug, who is also known as Cave Doug, which is also a badass fucking name. He's, he's a badass dude for sure. For his vast knowledge of the Mojave Mines. He had grown up in the area and had a passion for going through the desert and discovering new territories, so he was definitely the right man for this job. At first, they began going mine by mine. But this didn't prove to be very good strategy because it was just so incredibly time-consuming. Lucky for them, one of Chris's friends came forward with some information. The week before Aaron went missing, he and Chris went out to the desert looking for mines, and the friend took a ton of photos. They were in this one specific area, so after Cave Doug got a glimpse of these photos, he knew exactly where they had gone. So this really helped narrow down the search. But since there were still a lot of mines in that general area, they had a lot of searching to do regardless. And they spent many days in a row doing so. But as we know, searches like this cost a lot of money and they take a lot of manpower. So it can't go on forever. On Saturday, August 16th, 2014, so about a month and a half after Aaron disappeared, they declared that that would be their last day searching the mine shafts. They hadn't found anything thus far and still didn't have any real evidence that she'd be there anyway, so they were kind of at a crossroads. You know, they couldn't search forever and they didn't even know if they were searching in the right place. Just because he had been to that mine didn't mean that she was there since they still had no evidence of what happened to her. But crazy enough, on this final day of searching, one of the officers noticed the smell of gasoline coming from one of the mines. And it wasn't one of the mines you would walk straight into. It was a vertical shaft. So investigating it would be very difficult and dangerous. Because when they peered down the shaft, 
It was just complete darkness. And this shaft was actually 140 feet deep. So this wasn't going to be an easy feat at all. But next to the mine was a shell casing. So they had a feeling that this could be the shaft. That's when they called the San Bernardino Fire Department because they were skilled in working in small spaces and doing rescue missions in the area, sometimes even including in mine shafts. If you want to see photos of the mine shaft, head on over to our Instagram at Going West Podcast or our Twitter at Going West Pod. It's really creepy. So as one of the firemen, whose name is Brenton Baum, worked his way down the shaft with a flashlight, he explained this as being incredibly terrifying because he was essentially looking for a dead body. And because it was a vertical shaft, he was afraid that it would cave in on him at any moment and trap or kill him, especially since every inch he descended caused rocks, like pretty much small rocks, to fall from above. But still, that kind of gives you the sense that it's just going to completely crumble. And since he was being so careful, this whole descent took about 45 minutes. As the fireman continued down, he came upon the bottom of the shaft. And at the bottom, he found a large white propane tank, a bottle of Sprite soda, a homemade torch, and a piece of rope. Then he saw what he believed was a decomposing body. And you can only imagine how intense this was. It was a very hot day, nearly 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 43 degrees Celsius, outside in the desert, and 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius inside the shaft itself. So this fireman goes down this very hot, very dark, small, cramped mine shaft that he thinks is going to cave in on him exactly and he's risking his life and then he comes upon a body and he now has to bring this body back up with him oh god that gives me the chills so badly and by the way because of the heat and the small space he had a respirator on so he wasn't able to smell anything as he descended so when he went back up to the top and took the respirator off He could smell the strong scent of gasoline and decomposition, and he just got super sick after that. And because of that, a different fireman, Paul Anastasia, had to go down to retrieve the body from the bottom of the shaft, and he had an equally horrifying experience, especially since he had to, as carefully as he could, put the body inside of a bag to bring it up with him, which took 30 minutes to do. When he got back up to the top, the body was able to be examined, and they quickly determined that it was that of Aaron Corwin, but also later fully confirmed this via dental records. She had died from strangulation and blunt force trauma to her head. Still attached to her neck was a homemade garrote. For those of you who don't know what a garrote is, neither did I, it's basically a rope with a handle on each end, which makes it easier to strangle someone because you have a grip. This specific garrote was made out of cord and rebar. Rebar is just a steel bar that is usually used to reinforce concrete structures, and then the cord was a thick braided cord. So a homemade device of two steel handlebars attached to a thick braided cord was used to strangle Aaron Corwin to death. So this device was specifically made to strangle. That's what a garrote is. 
So this tells us that premeditation is more than likely the situation here. Police were now very confident that Chris was behind this murder, so they had him arrested in Alaska for the murder of pregnant 19-year-old Aaron Corwin. And as they examined all the evidence at the scene, they found that both Aaron and Chris's DNA was on the lip of the Sprite bottle, putting them both at the scene of the crime. There was also DNA evidence on the knob of the propane tank that was consistent of Chris's. The only DNA found on the rebar handles of the garrote was Aaron's. And this made investigators feel that he likely had been wearing gloves and that Aaron's DNA had gotten on it during decomposition. There was obviously talk of either John or Nicole being involved in the murder. But on the day Aaron disappeared, Nicole used her home computer consistently between 11 a.m. and noon, which would have been either during the murder or after the murder, but still, remember, Chris got home at 3.30, so it's during the whole scenario. And John used his home computer between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m., so this pretty much kind of cleared both of them. In October 2016, so about two years later, Chris's murder trial began. One of the first people to speak in the beginning of the trial was Aaron's mom, Lori. She explained how excited she and Aaron were about her visiting, and she even mentioned all the home-cooked meals that Aaron wanted to make with her mom. When Lori got to California after Aaron went missing, she noticed that Aaron had already bought most of the ingredients to make all those meals together. John also spoke about his relationship with Aaron and their marriage during trial. Also during the trial, the prosecutor laid out all the physical DNA that we just explained and a lot of other incriminating information, like a poem that was found in Aaron's jewelry box. It had Chris's DNA on it, and it read, Like it or not, you still hold a part of my heart. Ready or not, we were gonna get caught. Don't give up, and I won't too. Hopefully like me, you'll still think, I love you. Along with this, Jesse showed all of her texts between she and Aaron regarding Chris to further prove their affair. Cave Doug explained to the court how they found the mine using photos from Chris's trip with his friend to further prove that Chris had to be behind it all. Another witness that took the stand was a young woman named Aisling. She lived in the apartment below John and Aaron with her husband and young son, and she became really good friends with Aaron. Such good friends that Aisling was the one to take Aaron to the hospital when she had a miscarriage. Aisling had met Chris on many occasions since they all lived in the same building and they all kind of hung out together. And she said that Chris talked about murder more times than she could even count. Yeah, and she said that it really weirded her out, obviously. She remembers him specifically talking about snapping necks and hiding bodies with the coyotes. And you have to think that she couldn't have been the only person to notice this, which kind of makes you wonder about his wife, Nicole. Because Aisling also stated that after Aaron went missing, she called Nicole to tell her that police were looking for Chris. And Nicole apparently said, I don't care what happened to that little bitch. And Nicole was Aaron's really good friend. So you would assume she said this probably because of the affair, but maybe she knew what Chris was doing. You know, it just makes you wonder. Aisling's husband, Connor, also took the stand and said he tried to reach Chris multiple times on the day that Aaron disappeared because Chris had invited him to go coyote hunting earlier that morning, but he couldn't go. About an hour later is when Connor started calling him to meet up, 
but all Chris said was to meet him outside Joshua Tree National Park. But Connor couldn't end up finding him. Connor also noticed that later that day the propane tank which Chris had borrowed from Isabel was no longer in his Jeep. The next morning, Connor asked Chris if he knew where Aaron was, and Chris said he didn't. Connor then asked him, Did you do what I think you did? And this gives us a lot of insight, I think. If one of Chris's good friends suspected he did something to Aaron, and Connor also probably knew that they were having an affair, that says a lot about who Chris is. I mean, you don't just suspect anyone of murder. Well, it kind of seems like this guy is talking about murder a whole lot to a lot of different people. Exactly. During the fifth day of trial, they also displayed all the phone records, which proved that Chris and Aaron were in the same place around 7.30 a.m. on the day she disappeared. The last activity on Aaron's phone was around 8.04 a.m., and the last activity on Chris's phone was at 8.22 a.m. until 3.13 p.m. later that day. So his phone was out of service or off between 8.22 a.m. and 3.13 p.m. Back to the trial. A detective took the stand to discuss the findings in Chris's truck after his arrest in Anchorage, Alaska. Police discovered a different homemade garage, multiple knives, and climbing rope. And this is incredibly insinuating, because what are the chances that Chris happens to have a garage in his car but didn't murder Aaron? I have never heard of a garage before this case, and now here's two? Yeah, there's two of them, and not only, it's like, his truck is now in Alaska, right? Well, now he's got a garage in his truck in Alaska, which leads me to believe that maybe, maybe, since this guy was obsessed with talking about murder, that it's possible he was going to murder someone else. I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, why else do you have a garage other than to literally strangle somebody? Exactly. So on the ninth day of trial, Chris Lee took the witness stand. He admitted to having a sexual relationship with Aaron. He admitted he knew Aaron was pregnant and he was possibly the father. And he admitted he was in love with Aaron and wrote her the love letter that we discussed previously. When asked about the day Aaron disappeared, Chris Lee admitted that he picked up Aaron from where her car was found, and he explained what supposedly happened that day. Chris stated that he had planned to build a tire fire in a remote mine that day with Aaron, and when they got to that spot, he threw down the propane tank, tire, water jug filled with gasoline, and the homemade torch all while Aaron listened to music in his Jeep. But he forgot to light the torch when he threw it in, which made him angry because this fire did not happen. So he went back to his Jeep and started playing Russian roulette with his gun, which is, I guess, something he did occasionally or somewhat occasionally. Why, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, and this made Aaron upset, obviously, because he's kind of trying to kill himself, and so she walked off. But when the first shot didn't kill him, he called Aaron back to the car. Who just randomly is like, let's play Russian roulette? Yeah, I don't know. um, A guy that makes up stories. Anyways, then Chris pulls this wild story out of nowhere. A story he never mentioned to police during his nine-hour interrogation. A story no one in his circle has heard before. And as he started telling the story, 
He was acting as if he was telling his truth and finally getting something off of his chest. He admitted to killing Aaron, but he said it was because she admitted to molesting his five-year-old daughter, Liberty. He said that he had suspected this weeks prior because of something Nicole said, yet neither of them called police. Instead, the way he told the story, he waited to make this surprise trip to kill someone he supposedly thought was sexually assaulting his daughter. He said he was so enraged by Aaron's confession that he strangled her and he threw her down the mineshaft. The nerve. Chris stated that he was getting something off his chest, and in the court video, he doesn't look enraged or passionate. He looks calm and afraid. There's no regret, no tears. He just very matter-of-factly stated this wild story, even though we know he had homemade garrots in his possession, and we know he had alternative motives to want Aaron dead. And we know he took talked about murder all the fucking time. Exactly. This was something he wanted to have happened. This is something he enjoyed doing. You know, he wanted her dead likely because she was potentially birthing his child and it was going to destroy his family. Because remember, her murder happened six days after she found out she was pregnant. That's no coincidence. And we know Chris has lied many times. We know he's a backpedaler. I personally do not believe one bit of this sad story, and I find it absolutely horrific that he even said any of it. I mean, what a disgusting dude. And then also to use your child in a story and say that your child was being molested, there's nothing that this guy will not do to try and cover his tracks. It's so cowardly to bring your innocent child into this whole mess. So here's what we know. Before Aaron went missing, Chris had Googled how to dispose of a dead body and asked friends the same question. And to one friend who asked him why, Chris winked at him. He explained the vertical mine shaft to his friend as a place that was so remote that no one would ever find it. He had the same type of murder weapon in his own car. His DNA was found on the items next to Aaron's body. He never called police or told anyone else that he suspected Aaron was molesting his daughter Liberty, and he murdered Aaron just days before his planned move back to Alaska. So a big thing with this molestation story is that Chris continued to have a romantic relationship with Aaron, supposedly after he discovered this. When the prosecutor asked Chris, you continued having sex with the woman you and your wife thought was molesting your daughter, Chris said, It wasn't on the forefront of my mind. Yet it was on the forefront of your mind so much that you're going to viciously murder her? His story makes absolutely no sense. What a liar. In all the cases we've researched, I have never experienced this many lies and this much backpedaling. This level of deceit and deception and deflection. This guy is just, uh, he's just a piece of work. Chris was then asked to use a garrote to strangle a dummy in the same way that he strangled Aaron. And when he acted out the scene, he had the dummy over the right side of his back, you know, kind of like he's Santa Claus and the dummy is his sack of gifts. And they had him do this for as long as it took to kill Aaron, second by second, minute by minute, to show the room how long it took. And to kind of explain this better, it was kind of like, the the cord part was around her and he, like I said, think of it as a Santa Claus bag and he's holding the handles of the garrote kind of on the right side of his chest. Right. So 
her back is to his back. Yes, exactly. His They're back to back and he's leaning forward. Right. And her neck is over his shoulder, basically, while he's pulling on the garage. Exactly. And he acted this all out in front of the court and they're all just watching exactly how he killed her. And it took over five minutes to kill Aaron. This proved that he could have stopped at any moment over those five whole minutes. And Chris explained that he wasn't able to stop because the hate commanded him. And he also said that anger and hate, that's what moved me forward. In the prosecutor's closing statement to the jury, he stated, Chris's testimony was scripted. It was rehearsed. It was meant to con you. He also called the molestation scenario asinine garbage and said, if a man who crafts lies to suit his own needs and to everyone important in his life, what do you think he's going to do to you? After 10 days on trial, Christopher Brandon Lee was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Aaron Corwin. He received the sentencing of life in prison without the possibility of parole, but no death sentence. And Nicole wasn't even there for his sentencing. So it's safe to say she probably wasn't supporting him through any of this. And for those wondering why he didn't get the death penalty, I had read something very briefly about it being thrown out before the trial started. I don't know why, but that's the only reason that he didn't get it was because it was previously thrown out. And we never did find out if Chris was the father of Aaron's baby after all, either because they couldn't determine it in the autopsy or the information just hasn't been released. Chris went on to appeal his conviction in 2018, but that was denied. He remains in prison now at the age of 29 and will remain there for many, many, many more years. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. As usual, it's time for the shout-outs. So thank you so much to everybody who gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts this week. Big thanks to Maria in Maryland, Molly in Maine, and Lisa in Minnesota. And then we have Jessica in Bardstown, Kentucky, Rachel in Moss Bluff, Louisiana, and Willow in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you so much to Josh in Minneapolis, Will in Philly, and Judd in Lone Tree, Colorado. And a big thanks to Millie in Texas Hill Country, Elizabeth in Dallas, Texas, and Jessica in Florida. Big thanks to Ashley in Edmonds, Washington, Samantha in Los Angeles, California, and Glenn in Delray Beach, Florida. And last but not least, Thank you so much to Kenzie in Toledo, Pinky in Brisbane, Australia, and Jessica in Victoria, Canada. And oh my gosh, I love Victoria, Canada. So beautiful. And remember, if you guys want a shout out on the show, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review, but make sure you leave your name and your location. And then of course, we want to say thank you to everyone who has joined our Patreon in the last week. And if you guys want bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. Big thanks to Lindsay. So sorry we forgot about you last month. Sometimes that happens. We appreciate your consistent support. And guys, if we did forget your name, sometimes it happens. Just send us a message and we'll make sure to say it. So thank you so much to Lindsay, Natasha, Marcus, Kelly, and the Witch of Seattle. Love that. Witch of Seattle. I fucking love that. Yes. And a big thanks to Leah, Leah, 
Heidi, and Maria. Thank you so much to Sally, Andrea, Kendra, and Dana. And last but not least for our patrons, we have Matt, Gretchen, Anna, and Lauren. Thank you guys so much. You really help out the show. You help us keep going. And like Daphne said, if you guys want some bonus episodes, head over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast and subscribe. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. 